Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the primordial task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That one doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. (laughs) My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally primordial three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until this podcast, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello, and by this time, I do feel like I've seen things one way or another. <laughs> what? <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> I guess I've seen a lot of Doctor Who novels, some better than others. So. Oh, oh! I thought you were talking about just in general, like hallucinations. She split herself into twelve parts. Oh, okay, that's what it is. You're Good permitted God. to edit out the attempted joke. Oh, that's fine. I just didn't know what it was referring to, to be honest. That's fine. That just caught me a bit wrong-footed. Speaking of catching people wrong-footed, I have an announcement to make before we get started. Before we go any further, I just wanted to let everybody know out there in podcast land, though if you're following me on Facebook, you already know about this. My daughter, Grayson Avery Zuniga, was born this morning at 7 pounds 8 ounces. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, God, what was that? It's a little noisemaker. Your microphone doesn't like that little noisemaker because I hear the first part of it, but it just goes... Oh, no. (laughs) 
goodness. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's good to have her in the world finally. So eventually, hopefully, my daughter will be a Doctor Who fan and she'll hear these someday or or not. Who knows? It's too soon to tell. (laughs) But I thought everyone would like to know. So. If you like what you're hearing, I don't imagine how you would, but there you go. Please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those. You've scattered them across 12 different eras in time. Ha <laughs> ha see what I did there. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air and as usual we'd like to thank our regular patrons bart lammy rick taylor toby Bengelsdorf, jay barry the video junkyard podcast the doctor Who collectors podcast hans wax stephen pickering james sumnall dave davis and simon painter thank you all thank you thank you <laughs> dalton did you just have that noisemaker sitting around or do you carry it around <laughs> it's in my pockets uh no uh, no um we had a couple birthdays a few weeks ago and i'm in the office where we had party supplies so i'm sitting beside them and when you mentioned that you were going to make the announcement i thought oh. i would grab one. Oh, good well I'm, I'm glad it was a good announcement because that would have been inappropriate otherwise <laughs> oh i don't have any trombones around so. <laughs> my, yes. my apartment burned down Woo! yeah exactly we all also have our Goodreads discussion group. I don't know why I'm doing this in the middle of this. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. If you think about it, we're kind of better than most podcasts because we don't talk about what we've been watching on TV and what we ate this week for an hour before we get started with what we're doing. We talk about stamps.com. Well, yes, and that's much more important. I love Stamps.com. See, there you go. And no, we're not sponsored by Stamps.com, though it would be nice to be sponsored by, you know, just about any big company. We love our Patreons, but we we want some of that Stamps.com money. Mm-hmm. That came out wrong. Okay, um... Let me get back to this. We now have a special episode in which we look at two books that could be considered technically Target. One of them is a fan novelization by David Lawrence, and the other, an official novelization by James Goss. Both of them are of the script by Douglas Adams' City of Death. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the City of Death, adapted by David Lawrence and again by James Goss from the script by David Agnew that aired from 92979 to 102079, published by the New Zealand Doctor Who Fan Club in 1992 and 2002, and by BBC Books in April 2018. As of this recording in February of 2022, the Lawrence version is available online, and the Goss version is currently in print, 82 and 186 pages. Wow, that was hard to get through. Mm-hmm. All right, first of all, It's already a misnomer to call this a Douglas Adams script, even though he did indeed write most of it. Our old friend David Fisher, whose book we're going to be reading next time, since he also wrote the next script that we're doing, submitted a script called The Gamble with Time, 
which was meant to be a take on the old Bulldog Drummond stories set in the 1920s and in Paris and Monte Carlo, with the Count using a device to cheat gamblers at a casino so that he could fund the device to take him back and prevent his ship from exploding. So that bit is still in from the original. Okay. Interestingly, Fisher had originally envisioned the setting as Las Vegas... So the story could have been filmed in Las Vegas, but for obvious reasons, that was changed. In fact, it would be a very long while before Doctor Who would go abroad again after this story. Two things kept the script from going out under Fisher's name. One was that producer Graham Williams felt the scripts he was getting were too much of a bulldog Drummond story than a Doctor Who one. It's kind of like that Quentin Tarantino Star Trek script that they were going to do that was going to be piece of the action, the old episode where they were in 1930s Chicago. It would have been more Quentin Tarantino than Star Trek. So that same rationale. And also that the script was emphasizing gambling too much for a kid's show. Not that. No, not that. (laughs) Though apparently art theft and killing thugs that have displeased you... I was going to say, however, the extermination of humanity was considered all ages. Yes, that's perfectly fine, Family Fair. I'd let my daughter watch it. And she's barely a day old. The other is that... I I won't keep doing that, I I promise you. The other is that Fisher was going through a rough divorce at the time and couldn't do the extensive rewrites necessary to hammer the script into shape. Thus, Williams essentially locked Douglas Adams up in a room in his house, provided him with whiskey and coffee, though hopefully not at the same time, (laughs) and helped him hammer out a new version of the story over the course of one weekend. So that's the inspiration for Kerensky. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That's why these are... That's probably why he's in there, yes. (laughs) Because it was so extensively rewritten, Fisher asked that his name be removed from the script, and thus the standard BBC pseudonym David Agnew was used, just as it was for The Invasion of time two seasons previously but otherwise this is very much a douglas adams script and it's considered by some to be the very best doctor who story ever since there was a chance of doing a location shoot in paris the first time the show would ever go abroad for location work the setting had to be updated to modern times because they couldn't obviously you know go into paris and redress everything for 1920s and the gambling and monte carlo elements were dropped but Duggan remains a spoof version of Bulldog Drummond. The location shoot was rough, since they managed to schedule part of it during a holiday in France, when several of the galleries where they wanted to shoot were closed. So they had to do some jury rigging with that. But it did give Tom Baker and Lala Ward an opportunity to begin falling in love, which they did over Mm. the course of the story. Not the characters, but the actors. Speaking of Lala Ward, this story was made after our next one, Creature from the Pit, and Lala Ward was highly displeased with the costume that designer Doreen James made for her in that story, and she was even more displeased with the costume that James wanted her to wear for this one, which would have been a silver cat suit. Hmm. And if you've ever seen Lala Ward, she's not a silver cat suit kind of gal. She instead opted to wear a British schoolgirl outfit on the grounds that she felt British schoolgirls hated those outfits and wanted to show them how fun they could be to wear, not realizing that British dads watching the show would also find them fun to look at. (laughs) 
After all this, Doreen James quit in protest, and Ward had much more input on her own costumes. Sounds like Baker was giving her some pointers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Lala Ward has never suffered fools gladly, so she's definitely a force of nature herself, but she's just, she's not quite as loud as Tom Baker is about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of it right there. The cast of this story is stunning. We get Julian Glover who'd previously played King Richard in The Crusade back in the 60s with William Hartnell as Scarleone. He'd also been in Nicholas and Alexandra with Tom Baker, though to my knowledge they had no scenes together. And he would later appear in The Empire Strikes Back and in Game of Thrones as Grand Maester Pycelle. So that's the actor we're talking about. The Countess was played by Catherine Schell, known best as Maya from Space 1999 Season 2, and who'd appeared as a similar character just a few years previously in The Return of the Pink Panther. Here's a fun fact about her. She was the very first actress considered to play Catherine Janeway on Star Trek Voyager before Genevieve Bujold was rather disastrously cast. But for some reason, when Bujold left the show, they didn't think to go back and ask Catherine Schell, who would have made an amazing Captain Janeway, I think. Nothing against, you know, the other one. <laughs> Kerensky was played by David Graham, who'd provided the voices of the Daleks back in the 1960s. And Tom Chadman played Duggan, and he would go on to return to the show in Colin Baker's second season in a different role. And most amazingly, the parts of the two art critics, the ones who are looking at the TARDIS as if it's a piece of art, they were played by John Cleese... And Eleanor Braun, Ah. in completely unpublicized cameos. Cleese was in the BBC to film the finale of Faulty Towers, and he didn't want their cameos to upstage the production, so he asked to be credited as Kim Bread, (laughs) which the BBC refused to do. And while he was there, he also acted in a comedy sketch with Tom Baker for the BBC Christmas tape that year. Douglas Adams, of course, never novelized the story, but he did borrow tons of material from it for Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, so if you've ever read that book, parts of this will be very familiar. David Lawrence originally wrote the New Zealand fan club novel in 1992, and then he revised it in 2002 to restore much of the material that editor Ian Schoons had removed. Hmm. James Goss, who we already know, wrote a much longer hardback version of this book in 2015, which I've read, and then abridged it for the BBC Books Target imprint in 2018. So this is a shorter version of a longer one. So those of you who've read the hardback, this is a shorter version in a different book, just as Pirate Planet was. And this time, Allison read the correct (laughs) version of it. Well, we'll get to that later, won't we? Oh, no. Oh, oh, oh no. no. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Trust me, it's fine. Uh, uh, okay. It's going to be okay. It, it, okay, it, it, <laughs> if you say so. So, we have two back covers to read this time, and I'm going to let you two divvy them up between you. Uh, we'd like to read the Lawrence version first, the New Zealand Book Club one. So, Dalton, do you have that one up? I can do that one. When the Doctor and Romana take a break from their travels in Paris, 1979, a holiday is far from what they get. Strange things are happening. Lost art treasures are turning up. 
secret experiments are causing distortions in time, and the greatest art fraud in history is about to reach its fruition. When the time travelers team up with Duggan, a British detective, they learn that everything points to Count Carlos Scarleone, a wealthy and famous art collector who is somehow much, much more than he seems. If Scarleone is allowed to succeed, his plans will result in all life on Earth ceasing to have ever existed. Well, that doesn't give anything away, does it? Nope. Okay, and Allison, do you have the BBC version with you? I do. Visiting Paris in 1979, the Doctor and Romana's hopes for the holiday are soon shattered by armed thugs, a suave and dangerous count, and a plot to steal the Mona Lisa and a world-threatening experiment with time. Oh, man. They omitted the Oxford comma and it changed the meeting. All right. Brief moment of silence. All right. Teaming up with a British detective, the Time Lords discover that a ruthless alien plot hatched in Earth's prehistory has reached its final stage. If Scaroth, last of the Jagoroth, cannot be stopped, then the human race is history, along with all life on Earth. Very good. Thank you both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, first impressions of this story and this project Dalton what were your first impressions well I remembered the last fan versions that we read being a pretty solid take on the story so I was pretty excited to see that happen the the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club seems to have their shit together um, (laughs) when it comes to that so yeah I was I was pretty excited about that and then of course I've really liked the James Goss books that we've read so it was kind of an interesting experiment again to read two takes on the same story and to see how they were handled and i think they both did a really good job with it so yeah all right and allison what was your first impression well in bright red letters right beneath the blurb on the back of the book it says this novel is based on a doctor who story which was originally broadcast from 29 september to 20 october 1979 so this is my birth story Oh, that's right. So I won't be more specific for any uh, crossover audience we may have between Doctor Who fans and Identity Thieves. But in that (laughs) time period, with the advent of me, perhaps I am the 13th Splinter. I'm not saying anything for certain. (laughs) So I'm glad it was good. So you were born during this story, just as my daughter was born during the recording of our discussing of the story. Correct. Wow, that is bizarre. Well, not not quite daring, but yes. <laughs> I I assume the birth isn't going on now. No, 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 no. She's 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 out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't think of a way to say that. <laughs> yeah, she's out. Uh so where do we start with this? I'd like us to start by just talking about the story and what we liked about it or disliked about it, and then talk about how each author handles it. Because Dalton, you're absolutely right. The New Zealand fan club has this just amazing stable of writers who are every bit as good as the quote-unquote professional ones. Mm-hmm. Because they've gone on to do professional work too. So yeah, there's there's not a lot of light between these two versions. It's all a difference in approach. But the basic story itself, what did we think of the basic story itself? I thought it was an interesting concept. Um, it did remind me a bit of Horcruxes from from Harry Potter. But this, I, I guess this isn't really the first time we've had a, an, an instance of a being being split into different parts. I think this may be the first instance of them being spread throughout time. Mm-hmm. But 
yeah, I think having a change of location helps us. You know, a lot of times when we have current stories, they're taking place in the UK. Right. So, so having it be of the time, current, but in Paris, kind of, it, it gives a lightness to it. And then, yeah, I think that uh, Duggan is a fantastic secondary character, a good foil to the Doctor's buffoonery. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just really enjoyed this all around. Yeah, you have somebody who's acting like a fool and somebody who actually is a fool. And yes. then you have Romana rolling her eyes at both of them. Yeah. Which is just marvelous. <laughs> Allison, what did you think of the story in general? Well, I'm not sure where to start because I've got in front of me two or three pages of notes from the Lawrence version. Mm-hmm. And then I've got the copy that was hand-delivered to me by Tony Witt. That's the James Goss novelization. And then mm. it's possible that I went fishing on Audible as well. Oh, no. <laughs> downloaded the full one and listened to it because i didn't have a whole lot of time (laughs) ironically listened to it at 2.75 time which i did not know i was capable of because i was i'd already read the goss novelization that was the short version i was just curious about well what in the world is in a nine hour version of this because the version that we were at i would expect to be about four to five hours as a read aloud so I was just very curious about what the additional content was. Yeah. And it was, in fact, delightful, and it was all perfectly good to leave out as well, so, without harming the story. Yeah, I hadn't thought to warn anybody that <laughs> the Target version of this book does not have an audio book because there already exists one, but it's for the long version that James Goss did back in 2015. And I thought it was delightful. but it I, is. I, I and, and there's a sense in which now the... the the smaller ta- uh, paperback that we have seems a bit of a slaughter, but I do understand. So <laughs> mm-hmm. they basically took out the, the the new material that he wrote. Yeah. So it's truly an episode novelization as opposed to an expanded one. Yeah, because Dalton doesn't know this, even though Dalton, I I would definitely suggest reading the long version at some point because it is delightful. There's only one thing I don't like about the long version, and that is uh, James Goss feels the need to give those two art critics a lot of backstory Hmm. so that when you get to that scene in the art gallery you know who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And it's like, uh, that's a bit over-egging the pie for me, to be honest. Whereas the the fact that they only get that scene in both versions still makes it good for me. So yeah. that's yeah. the main thing. But there's a lot of new uh, extra stuff in the long version. Well, and of course, I love a prologue. So the Lawrence prologue talks about how he started by novelizing this when he was 12 years old and it was a great story about his personal artistic development and sort of learning about copyright and publishing (laughs) well sort of this the idea of this sort of mythical world of doctor who novels and then getting a real letter back about copyright and (laughs) (laughs) insinuating they know he is actually a child etc but how he actually as an adult has entered this world. I thought that was, it was a great lead up to a story wherein his version starts with a prologue of what I assume, who I assume is the doctor visiting the hermit Campo to learn about the story of the Jagaroff. I assume that's supposed to be the doctor? Yeah, it Mm -hmm. is. It's the Hartnell doctor. And the way we know it is because Campo gets irritated by his habit of uh, gripping his lapels. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
the, uh, let's start with the Lawrence version then, because that does have the most marked differences from the televised story. But mm-hmm. since we started with it, it felt the opposite way. Really? Well, because okay. I haven't seen the televised story. Well, that is true. That is well, true. Well, I take that back. You showed me an episode of it many, many years ago. And the, the only line I remember is, wonderful butler, so violent. That's it. I <laughs> so. did. I do remember that now. I thought, huh. I may have shown you the whole thing because it's very unlike me to show anybody just an episode of something, but hmm, okay. But yeah, uh, that's the thing to know about these two. And for those out there who have not read the Lawrence version first, it is much more in the style of one of the Virgin New Adventures. In fact, he mentions that in his foreword to the book, that it's very much in the style of the New Adventures that were published throughout the 90s. So lots of new stuff, lots of continuity references and things that didn't happen in the story at all. And he even says, if I remember correctly in his foreword, that it commits some of the sins that he himself wrote in an article about the New Adventures as saying that they, these are the things the New Adventures do that they shouldn't be doing. And he could see it in his own writing of this. <laughs> but yeah, that, that prologue in the Lawrence version is just amazing, though it does do the whole New Adventures thing of um, there's a reference to the house and the cousins, which may have gone over your heads a bit. Mm-hmm. I-, I thought there was some story there that would be familiar to many readers that was not familiar to me. Oddly enough, it would only be familiar to someone who's read the New Adventures, because that comes from the last one with Sylvester McCoy, Lungborough, and... Yeah, I'm not going to go into that, but let's just say it lays out what Gallifreyan culture is like in a way that we have not seen in the television show. So those are all references to the new adventures. The bits with vampires and the atrocities that the Time Lords have committed in their prehistory, those are stories that are coming up. So I'm not going to get into that. Mm. But yeah, this way of introducing the Jagroth is actually pretty good because it shows us that the Doctor actually does know about them before and hadn't just heard of them. Have we read about them before or are they just like a lot of other doomed lizard races? They're like a lot of other doomed lizard races. I thought I remembered some version of this story of the last spaceship full of lizard people. Really? um, Exploding on a barren planet. Probably for me showing you the episode. No, I think I'm thinking of the ones who uh, were farming crabs. Farming crabs? Yes, I'm not what making this up. Oh, right. oh. Clearly, clearly I'm thinking of the wrong species. Are, are we thinking about that Choose Your Own Adventure book that we read about the macra? No, no, I'm thinking about the ones who lived in an underground society because the surface was lo- no longer fit for habitation. Oh. The wrong species. Right. Yeah, so... We may be thinking about the, the chase. Were Daleks in it? Edited <laughs> out. We're getting way far afield. Yeah. Okay, never mind. I'm barely fine. alive here. I'm doing what it, I can. It's not too far-fetched <laughs> to think that we've had a story about a dying race on Earth already. I'm sure we have. I'm sure there have been multiples, so... Yeah, it's not exactly yeah. anything new. The new thing is the splitting into multiple fragments of a person and then having him try to go back and stop that from happening. Yeah. And and the fact that they are the reason that humans exist or mm-hmm. that life on earth exists. Yeah. And what was the previous species of reptiles who were 
who used to hunt humans. I'm thinking about a different story now. Oh, yeah. Um, who, Silurians. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, who then approached the military base. Yes, yep, to uh, take it back. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so the, yeah, well, the Jaggeroth actually created them too, <laughs> because there's no life on Earth at the time that the Jaggeroth actually, um, at the time that they land there. But yeah, yeah, you pro- <laughs> you were probably thinking about the uh, Silurians there. I thought that Lawrence did a nice job of leaving the concept of this one individual being split over time as something sort of mystical that you just have to accept, even though it doesn't bear up under the tiniest amount of scrutiny. <laughs> and then, uh, no, but no, I, I thought he did so very well. And then Goss actually had an impressive go at trying to explain it that mm-hmm. worked much better than any explanation ought to work. I don't yes. think any explanation works, but his, he did a much better job than I would have been capable of. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Goss does something that when I first read the long version, I didn't like. And in this version, probably because it's pared down and I can notice it better, because I don't have a lot of extraneous stuff to have to wade through. It makes a lot more sense. And that is the difference between Scaroth knowing that he's a fragment and Scaroth mm-hmm. not knowing he's a fragment. Yes. I thought it worked so much better with him not knowing he was a fragment. Really? Why? The way that Goss explained that the most current fragment felt propelled to do this just because it felt like a sense of purpose that was innate in him, Mm -hmm. that felt more gripping to me. It felt more like thinking of the idea of your life having a purpose, your life having a deeper meaning Mm -hmm. on some level of of that, that fragment not having any idea about the previous iterations that have basically created humanity and carried it forward throughout history and him just having this urge to do this thing. I thought that was so interesting. Don't get me wrong. I thought Lawrence handled it very well too, but the, the whole idea of him kind of working with his past selves through time, it just didn't feel as compelling. It didn't feel as, as much of like a weight to it. Hmm. Interesting. Especially given the fact that, yeah, we we do know that him blowing up the ship is the catalyst for all of life to exist on Earth. So the fact that he then sees life and allows himself to carry it forward uh, technologically and, and, and get us to the point where he can finally go back and fix the thing that he did. Like, it, carry, it carries more weight. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, the divergence in the original train of thought is that Lawrence describes Scaroth knowing what's going to happen. He knows they're not going to survive the takeoff. Mm-hmm. And in Goss's version, it just seems like it's a pilot error. Yeah. And that's what he's going to go back and correct. So the Lawrence, when I was, I, I, I'm not sure I entirely got what he was trying to create by saying that, indicating that Scaroth knew that there was no way that they were going to escape the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically deciding to take a chance on creating new life (laughs) and seeing if that would work out and accidentally coming along for the ride. (laughs) In which case, was he going back just to essentially end his torment and end his existence? I wasn't sure I understood that because Goss Scaroth didn't mean to create life on Earth. Right. And Mm. his uh, his 12 different fractions. I like that the first one and the last ones are the ones with the greatest significance and the greatest division between them about how much they do or do not know. Mm-hmm. And that they're specifically the end cap fractions. Do you have these sort of distinct roles? But it felt like in the Goss version, if I understood correctly, 
he thought that if he went back and fixed the mistake, he could still survive. And the, that the Jagaroth could still survive. But I didn't understand how that would work either. I think that's what the intention is. And I know that that's the intention in the screen version. Neither one of them quite made sense to me, but I could be missing it. No. No, that's yeah. true. And there, there are things that don't bear close examination in the original script for just that reason. But you're right that the original impetus is to keep the ship from actually taking off because if it does then it's going to blow up they're going to destroy themselves entirely and he's going to be splintered through time and the whole thing's going to start all over again but you're right there is a slight difference in emphasis in what each author does with that well i guess ultimately does he want to save the jagaroth or does he want to rest is he ultimately trying to survive or is he ultimately trying to die no he's trying to save the jagaroth <laughs> but there's no version that we're told in, in lawrence he knows he can't save them. he knows he ne was never able to save them that's why it's more confusing in that version when he goes back mm. because at the time when he attempted the launch he already knew that it wasn't uh going to be successful right i i think that may be a difference in emphasis that he may indeed be trying to stop his own suffering from being splintered in time, but basically the on-screen version is he is specifically trying to save all of them, including himself, which presupposes that that would then actually work, because if he does that, then he won't be splintered through time, so he can't send himself back through time in order to stop himself. So it's like, okay, that's where the whole thing breaks apart. Yeah. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. <laughs> so one second, I think they've both done admirable jobs with a story that makes no sense at all and never could. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I know. So, yeah. Applause to both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is complicated in a way that only Douglas Adams could make it complicated. I don't think that the David Fisher version of it was exactly the same in its mechanics, except for the the casino thing, and that's how he's raising the money for it. In fact, mm -hmm. there is an artifact in both versions and in the televised version of that script. The doctor, when he's confronting Scaroth at the end, says, you've already rolled the dice once, you don't get another throw. Yeah. Yeah, I just made that connection. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, that appears to be an artifact that just carried over from the original script somehow. But or, it works. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does very much so. It may have just been Douglas Adams, you know, giving David Fisher a tribute by saying, I know that I've rewritten your script entirely. Here's an indication that I know exactly that what I've done. But there's yeah. nothing in the script to say anything about gambling, so it does. It's an odd line, but it still works. But because it, 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 it kind of echoes the whole idea that the reason that life exists on Earth is totally like a one in a billion trillion chance. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it's all about odds and probability, which is is gambling. Yeah. So like, it, yeah, it's like a little kind of wink and nod to it that hmm. that totally ties everything together. Yeah. David Fisher probably would have played that up a lot more had he written the scripts. It would have been about odds and about how insanely infinitesimally crazy it would be for life mm -hmm. to exist on Earth. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about all the different people we're talking about here. We've got four different writers. Fan version has three different versions. There is some echo between the uh, the, the 12 different fractions mm-hmm. <laughs> of our anti-hero here. Right. And uh, how this... How we experienced this story and how it has been published and adapted in different ways over the past 40 plus years. Yeah, absolutely. All these weird different fractions of the same story that are all iterations of the same thing. Right. So I wasn't sure if all of the different fractions sort of appear as fully formed adults, no family lineage. They just sort of come into being, maybe have normal lifespans, maybe not... They seem to tape, like, the, the, the first one who's sort of prehistoric is, is self-aware mm-hmm. of what he is. Last one's the least self-aware until, Scarleone's the least self-aware until he has this big moment where he hears his own name, his yes. own true name. Um, and pulls his, his face ears. off. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and his face starts falling off uh, as well. Well, but it's a, slow, it's a slow process. His face starts falling off, and that's a surprise to him. And then much later... He hears the Scaroff name sort of echoing in his ears. He starts experiencing his previous, I guess, his 11th version, which is you know, 500 years earlier. I mean, if we're really looking at it that closely, you have to wonder how the mechanics of that actually work. Well, that's what I'm saying. But it's mm-hmm. everything. It, it's interesting to think about as opposed to exasperating to think about. So <laughs> does he appear as a fully formed adult with less memory in each iteration? They all sort of are the same age or have the same lifespan because they're all 12 experiencing this sort of ecstatic moment of communion at the same time, but at different points in time. And mm-hmm. I think it speaks well of all of these writers. So that, that is actually interesting and intriguing mm-hmm. as opposed to just um, irritating. Yeah. yeah. Two points. I wondered why there were all these iterations of him and the most recent one, stopped in 1979 as opposed to there being spread out more and there are other iterations in the future right Mm -hmm. but then also the parallel of the 12 iterations of scaroth versus the 12 regenerations of the doctor (laughs) yes which the target version specifically says on the first page with its the many faces of doctor who they also do the many faces of scaroth which is interesting that's what the original target novelizations did back in the early 70s that's what they're saying that unless there was something magic about 12 as 1979 the technology had finally he had finally nursed the technology along to such a point where he could send himself back for the first time? Possibly, though you yeah. think the technology would be further along in some future date. Yeah. 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 It, it, that is one of those things, that if you think about it too long, it gets really frustrating. And you say, wait, is it just that he could only get it this far along? And if Romana hadn't come along to build that device to help him out, he would have had to go through the other less defined thing that he was going to do. One of his 400 million year timeline, he really likes the last 4,000. Yes. Yeah. Well, well and there's also... Uh, I don't remember which version it's in or maybe in both um, when the doctor's kind of confronting him at the end and Iskaroth is talking about what, what his race has to do. And the doctor basically tells him, you know, but humans have so much more to do than you even realize, mm-hmm. you know, he, he basically says like, yeah, you guys did a lot and can do a lot, but since you created humanity, they're going to even go further and do more than you. Right. 
And what gets me about that is that you have to wonder just how much influence those 12 iterations actually could have had. Because in both versions, we're told that, you know, one is a priest, one is a pope, one is a pirate, and and the other things that start with P. I assume one was a prostitute at some point. (laughs) How those particular individuals were able to push human development forward to that degree. Mm -hmm. We know that the first one, at least in the Goss version, taught humanity how to create fire. Yeah. So there's that. That's pretty big. And probably taught them the wheel and stuff like that. But uh, if there are only 12 iterations, just how much influence could he have? It it has to have come through humanity's ingenuity more than him. It sounds like he's taking too much more credit than he really should get for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and especially, yeah, unless he is literally there for every step of the way, there is going to be some human ingenuity coming into play. I mean unless he's literally there every time any kind of invention is thought up or artistic creation is, is, you know, pushed forward into the culture, there has to be some onus put on humanity as being the ones to, to own it. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) I mean, we're told that Kerensky, for instance, is the leading expert in temporal physics in the world. Well, that predates any sort of thing that Scarleone would have done and probably one of his other iterations wouldn't have created that form of physics so that's human ingenuity and he may have given it a little push but it can't have been much of a push (laughs) yeah I'll tell you the thing that really bothers me though the face masks Mm. Uh, (laughs) because at least Lawrence gives us a really good explanation of that that the Jagaroth are able to make themselves look like their enemies. Well, and, and since they're rept, I, I, I guess reptilian isn't quite right, but I thought it was kind of like a reptile, you know, losing its skin and then reforming another mm. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be that. Though we get indications that when he splintered into his different forms in time, he's appearing as himself. He appears to the Egyptians, for instance, without a mask. Mm -hmm. And there's no technology for him to make a mask. Yeah, that's where I kind of look at it and say, um, (laughs) does the one in the Renaissance just show up and he's he has his own face and they just accept him as a member of the guard and he works his way up how does that even operate or is he taking the place of say humans that already exist which would make a little more sense there's some line in goss about how the earlier iterations basically stage or provide a way to pass along the mask but it's all yes. part of the sort of hazy idea of mm-hmm. how much self-awareness they each have and how much awareness they have that they are one of many oh that's right goss mm-hmm. says that uh, he gets some form of alien technology it has a, but has a human sculpted yes I, i'm guessing it's the autons he doesn't he doesn't name them as such but i'm guessing anything that maybe the autons tried to invade earth at an earlier point and there just wasn't enough plastic around so they couldn't do it but they left enough remnants that they were able to do it but yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's it's again one of those bits that if you try to examine it too closely you just really get frustrated with it but both of the authors have done things to that to make it fun to look at that and their different approaches are good yeah goss goss basically talking about how older cultures were more readily accepting of alien 
cultures, meaning that they, they had seen other aliens. So, you know, this guy shows up and they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Why not? But yeah, as, as we move forward in time, people are less likely to jive with that. So he has to, I think too, I forget which version of Goss this is, but the countess talks about after she has beheld this, true form that he is something she would pan fry in garlic <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that would have been the long version yeah that's definitely not in the target uh version of it but as opposed to I try to worship line. him yes <laughs> yes we don't try to pan fry it in garlic <laughs> what else about the differences between their approaches and how do we like the way both of them handle the doctor and romana and duggan who probably would have made a marvelous third companion if he didn't already have canine well in the extended version actually has a, a moment where romana is talking about how she finds her, herself entertained by him and has a moment of asking the doctor if he can tag along and there's this idea that she's becoming more like the doctor and that she's going to start maybe thinking about collecting companions along the way and then she's <laughs> no 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 i can't get into that bad habit Oh, that's right. That is in the long version. Yeah, I I think it's not even suggested in the shorter Target version. But he does get a trip in the TARDIS in the Lawrence version, which he does not get in the Goss version. Mm. Yeah. I love that (laughs) bit where he actually, we get to see K-9 and the doctor asks K-9, are you feeling better? And he answers him and he says, good Lord, what happened to your voice? (laughs) <laughs> yes. Oh yes, I forgot about that. Yeah. And, the do- and the doctor basically egging Duggan on to ask why it's larger on the inside. Like, <laughs> go on, go on. You know you want to. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I thought that he and Romana had a wonderful chemistry um, in in both versions, but especially in the Lawrence version, when they basically break into the cafe to drink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, the owner is very blasé when he comes in the next morning, and they're still there. They're still drinking. <laughs> Serves coffee. I love that the owner, of the, the owner of the cafe basically becomes an important character in here, enough that we get a name for him. Yes. <laughs> Lawrence tells us that his name is Jacques. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> They've almost pushed him too far, not quite, but what will be the thing? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, almost so that I thought that maybe he would also have a larger part in it other than just being, you know, kind of a set piece that they interacted with. But he he was really enjoyable. Well, I think Lawrence talks about his patience and then the, the goth version talks about the waiter in the scene with all the gunpoint holdups. Uh-huh. And about how you can get rid of, you can get away with any sort of rudeness as long as you're you're civil to the staff. Yes, and that line that Goss has about um, they ignored them being at gunpoint because Paris had a venerable history of ignoring tourists seeking attention. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, they both identify strongly with uh, the owner or the waitstaff at the cafe. Yeah, uh, there's there's the bit about one of the gunmen leaving a tip and him being and being identified as a true Frenchman. Yes. <laughs> And we also get expansion in the Goss version of the woman at the Louvre, who's the uh, tour guide, and yes. telling the story yeah. to her cats that yeah. later on that night. That that bit where she says, I think he miss, must have been a true Frenchman when he's worried about the universe. That is a scripted line that was filmed and cut mm. from the original mm. version. So that's a nice little bit of referencing. There was the difference with the Polaroid camera. We, we learn in Goss's version that the doctor actually took it from one of the tourists. <laughs> on his... <laughs> yes. on his 
bend kleptomania bender. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Robani even makes a reference to it. She's like, kleptomania is a new a wrinkle. Yeah. Hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully he'll get rid of that soon. <laughs> well, the other big addition and Lawrence addition to starting with the the child hearing the story from the hermit is the birthday party. Yes. With Napoleon yeah. and Da Vinci and Mozart and painting the portrait as one of the party activities. And mm-hmm. Lisa herself swears a lot and is impatient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a second prologue. Yeah, that's a very new adventures thing to do. I thought it was like three prologues, arguably, in that one. We've got Campo, and then we've got the initial ship crash, and then we've got the birthday party, and then we start into our main story, which I, Mm -hmm. as a person who loved prologues, enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. The Lawrence version doesn't actually pick up with the televised story after the explosion of the Jagros spaceship until chapter two. And a lot goes on in those first two chapters, so it's Mm -hmm. like, whoa, Jesus and it's all great. It's just, it is kind of strange that you do have all of that time traveling historical figures going on, and yet none of them ever makes reference to having traveled in time and learning all these things about themselves and their futures. But yeah, that's fine. I like that yeah. Shakespeare would have gone copyright lobbyist <laughs> yes. and taking advantage of Swiss bank accounts. <laughs> and Homer wants to get copies of his poems, who so doesn't have to keep reciting them from memory. There's a lot of there are a lot of gratifying moments. In and there. then he calls <laughs> Chippendale bloody liberal. Yes. So. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, the Lawrence version, not the Goss version, but the Lawrence version is probably the first time we've seen the words bloody, bugger, and arse in a Doctor <laughs> Who novel. I was wondering about that. Yeah. I mean, we've had goddamn, but that is courtesy of Nigel Robinson, who was editor at the time, and he puts that word in the mouth of Ian Chesterton, of all people. <laughs> but apart from that, yeah, this is probably, the uh, in the Lawrence version at least, the most swearing we've ever gotten in a Doctor Who mm-hmm. novel. Well, forgive read. me, I'll yeah. probably keep saying Dugan because I don't understand until I heard the book on tape, which was read by Lala Ward, by the way. Oh, lovely. That uh, it was pronounced Duggan. So mm. I've been saying Dugan in my head. So sorry for that. But uh, I-, I like that in the Lawrence version, he is explicitly a bad cop and was bad enough to be fired for just beating too many people, even for the London police, which is a <laughs> lot of people <laughs> yeah. to be. Um, yeah. And I so I didn't understand that he was based on an existing fictional character. Yeah. So is that concordant with or divergent from the established character you were talking about that he's a take on? Well, now we're running into my lack of knowledge because Bulldog Drummond is a well-known character in the UK, not here. <laughs> so he's not, somebody... no, not well known to the three of us. No, no, not at all. But if he was well known enough in 1979 for Graham Williams to have looked at the script and said, oh, God, no, this is turning into a, more of a Bulldog Drummond story than it is a Doctor Who one. That, it, it's a pretty big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I would guess that Bulldog Drummond is not as, shall we say, challenged as Duggan is, because <laughs> Duggan has some problems, let's just say that. He's, um, yeah. yeah, not the sharpest tool in the shed, that's for sure. 
<laughs> Except when he is, which is brilliant. Well, the Lawrence version, he is uh, darker and sleazier. And the mm-hmm. Goss version, he's a little more hapless. Yeah. I think the most marked departure between the two is when they're told, let me find the exact line here. The doctor is saying that we will be uh, watching the birth of life itself. And in the Goss version, uh, Dugan's like, I think we're told he is revolted. But in the Lawrence version, he's titillated because he thinks you're going to see a porno. It's <laughs> not said explicitly, but we watch the birth of life itself. Here, while we watch, he's suddenly interested. So. Right. Yeah. A little different take. One of the most effective and breathtaking, in a way, differences is the way Kerensky's death is handled oh, between oh, the yeah. two. Oh, yeah. Because Lawrence kind of just, it happens. Mm-hmm. But the Goss version is so elegant describing how inside the time bubble, Kerensky is living out the rest of his life. Yeah. In what they're seeing as just like a couple of moments. But th- there's the line that says it took him the rest of his life to die. Yes. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, that seems weird. And then the next like few pages actually describe what's happening and i'm like jesus christ yeah (laughs) it is one of the darkest sequences i've ever read in a doctor who book but it also happens to be possibly my favorite bit of writing in any doctor who book it it's fantastic well it took something that really bugged me about the story which is that the chicken thing was so phenomenally stupid because (laughs) it's using this massive amount of energy that's not provided it like the chicken doesn't metabolize anything like it takes this massive amount of energy to go from the egg to the adult etc and there's no kind of exchange or energy or anything in there so taking everything that makes no sense about this process and having a person experience it now we wish he would die of hunger or thirst but that didn't happen was it actually (laughs) played on one's annoyance of like well that's stupid that's not how energy works that's not how metabolism works and the the thing that had been kind of annoying me in the back of my mind i thought was developed really well Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that is a brilliant moment Interesting considering that Lawrence seems to find Kerensky nothing but sympathetic and put upon. And Goss does describes him as kind of, you know, whiny and yeah and, and annoying. So it's interesting that he presents him as less sympathetic and then gives him this more poignant end. Yeah. And I think it works better because of that. I think if you're thinking of Kerensky as just kind of whiny and wheedling and all that, to have even a character like that die in this very poignant way is incredibly moving. Mm-hmm. And the scene of Ramana raising, reaching out her hand towards him. Oh, yeah. Advancing for years, yeah. and then it starts retreating. Yeah, that Ramana is the only one of the three of them who probably knows exactly what's going on in there, except there's that wink. Yeah. That the Count gives him at one point. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, you bastard. You knew exactly what was going to happen. Oof. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What else did we like about either version? And was there anything we disliked? We have not talked at all about the Countess. No, and we need to. Lawrence loves the Countess, and now I love the Countess because Lawrence loves the Countess. Goss likes her, but a very similar kind of difference where Lawrence has a backstory of the marriage wherein she was about to catch 
the person who now turns out to be Scaroth and sort of art, some sort of art thief and blackmails him into becoming her partner in crime mm-hmm. versus the Goss version, where in the short versions, he's just more of a society girl. Yeah. And uh, actually explicitly called petty at one point and smart, but not not the sort of mastermind that we read about in the Lawrence version. Yeah. And that's in keeping with the way she's presented on screen. Catherine Schell is amazing in the story. Well, in both of them, I got that sense that she is incredible to behold in terms of command over scenes that she is in. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. absolutely. She has marvelous chemistry, both with Julian Glover and with Tom Baker. I was just going to say there, there's a line where it says that she loudly ignored the whole room. <laughs> yes, when they're having breakfast. And I could just feel that. <laughs> yes. She's not even processing these incredible things that are being said between Scarleone and Romana. That's actually in the Goss version where he makes a pastry for her, which I adore. I absolutely mm-hmm. love that scene. But she's just there listening and is ignoring the whole thing because she doesn't like Romana. <laughs> yeah. But she does in both versions do her, I'm assuming the episode, her own primary source document research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, don't get me started on that. Uh, the, the whole idea that an Egyptian papyrus scroll can survive for that amount of time and <laughs> you just keep it rolled up in a, uh, a, a box somewhere. Oh. But hey, <laughs> what can you do? Other things we liked or disliked. I really liked in Goss's version the way that Paris feels mm-hmm. when they're first like going to the cafe and they're talking about kind of going through all these uh, labyrinthine streets and how you could never really tell where the street ended and the cafe began. Mm-hmm. How traffic just kind of seemed to m- move with the pedestrians and everything just kind of was living together. Yeah. Paris is very much a character in the story. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true on screen because <laughs> this is their first time abroad on location and by damn, they were going to put it on screen and they sure as hell do. But you're right. Both of them have that care towards Paris though. It feels a little bit more, I know they probably both know Paris quite well, But Lawrence, I notice, gives a little more detail about what it actually would have been like physically to be there, such as Duggan having to stand in line, this long line to get into the Louvre to watch the Countess. And that's not in the Goss version, nor does it need to be, but Goss also has those touches as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and as I refer to this as my birth episode, when I was apparently born in a table wine year, (laughs) that in the Lawrence version, the reason I remember he has 92, 2002, and 2008 versions. He talks about these revisions. And uh, I looked back at that again when I was reading in the Lawrence version um, about how the Dr. Romana had just been in the reconstructed Globe Theater in the summer of 2000, yes. which is when I was actually at a play at the reconstructed Globe Theater in the summer of 2000. Oh, so I wow. suppose I took this book personally in, in positive ways as well, because like, oh, he's actually writing this 1979 story revised with his more recent travels in 2000, 
to 2008, and that mm -hmm. was... So I guess I'm ultimately agreeing that he has... He pays a little more attention to the physicality yeah. of the places he talks about visiting, and uh, Goss gives us more of the, the experience of, uh, as Romana would say, the bouquet of yes. the entire thing. And, <laughs> exactly. and together, they're, they're great. I, I, I really enjoy both versions. And I also noticed that Lawrence's book puts more of an emphasis on art very mm -hmm. much more that that's why you get that birthday party scene for instance in leonardo's studio is specifically because they're talking about artifice and artistry and all of that and that still comes across in the goss version but goss's version seems to focus more on the artistry of humanity and being alive hmm. and our accomplishments. I'm thinking about Scaroth's little speech at the very end. What do I care for the human race? But then he's thinking, has this moment of thinking, well, we've been through so much together, so many wonderful accomplishments, painting, patisserie, pyramids. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I can see that. There's still, the, it, it's hitting the same points, but from a different direction. And they're both marvelous directions. Oh, I have to say, the Japanese tourists in the Lawrence version, I love that moment where they're all excited. That. They're all excited by, they're more excited by the jelly babies that the doctor's giving out than oh. they are by the Mona Lisa. <laughs> yes. I adore that. And then the Goss version, he goes through Madame Henriette's contempt for different types of tourists by nationality. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. yeah, these ones do this, these do that, the other ones do this. <laughs> In the extended version, the extended Goss version, or I guess the the non-hatcheted version, I, I assume someone else edited down his longer version, but I could be wrong. He could have done that to himself. Anyway, that. like you said, he has way too much backstory for the art critics, but they are in fact art critics, and it is amusing. Yeah, well, one of them is. The other one isn't. He's a poser wannabe. Well, as you say, and then, the, okay, I thought they were both art critics in the Goss version, and then they are, we have a, the merchant banker in the Lawrence version who's just putting on airs. And then we have this, like, little love story, sort of. Lawrence has them as a merchant banker who's kind of trying to impress the other person. I forget if she is also a banker or similar. Oh. And they are spouting the same kind of lines. There's this tremendous chemistry between them, and it turns into a flirtation. But what I have, actually, in my notes is that it reminds me of... Uh, and the Green Death, Malcolm Hulk doing the uh, scene from the perspective of the murder maggot. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Get a quick but deep dive into the interior life of, instead of the murder maggot, the pretentious <laughs> banker. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and I love the murder maggot. Oh, yeah. The murder maggot. It's lovely. Anything else? Because we could talk about this for hours. Okay, yet. I've got like eight pages of notes and I'm trying to spare the universe in a way that Scott <laughs> yeah. would not. Just a, one little thing. In the Goss version, he talks about the background of the Mona Lisa painting being what Earth looked like when Skaroth blew up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Interesting that they both do different things with the painting because Goss says that that's what the background of the painting is. And then Lawrence talks about how the Mona Lisa doesn't have any eyebrows because she was tired of in that party. She was basically tired of sitting there. It was all like part of the party they were, they were at. <laughs> well, I think we can probably all agree that these are both books that if our listeners have not read them, they absolutely should, because they're they're both incredible in different ways. And in fact, um, when we get to the scoring and go to Goodreads, 
that's uh, that's going to be the tricky part. And I'll say that there's some slight advantage to whichever one you read first, because I have a lot of notes from the Lawrence version that turn out to be clearly word-for-word dialogue from the show, because or the episode, because mm-hmm. it's exactly the same in both of them. Yes. Herman assured his employer is that I think the quote is something like, the finest corrupt policemen in Paris yes. are going the city for the escapees. <laughs> There are a lot of lines. I assume Douglas wrote them. I don't know how much material he was given to work with when he was in the Kerensky dungeon. We may never know. Right. Yeah. And I think they are both incredibly witty writers. Their wittiness expresses itself in different ways, though. Goss is much more likely to do things such as do internal jokes where Ramon is thinking this about the doctor, the doctor's thinking this, or what have you. Lawrence does those as well, and both of them are willing to just plumb the hell out of the history of the show to amplify what was on screen, essentially. And they like different characters in a way that works for both of them, although they both love Romana, which is entirely appropriate. Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. And for that matter, I realized that they, they like different jokes differently. The doctor's line to the countess, you're a beautiful woman, probably. They they give that one a different emphasis, each of them. And it still works in both versions. The only one that does change that I don't like nearly as much is the I never knew much about geometry line of Romana's in in the Lawrence <laughs> oh, version. the Scarlioli angle? Yeah, yes. the Scarlioli angle, which is my favorite line. But Lawrence has her saying that essentially because she's still pissed off at the doctor calling her a number cruncher. Whereas in the Goss version, it's that's not the case. In fact, it's the doctor who gets that line. So, yeah. Shall we go to Goodreads? Let us go. I think so. I There's so much that I could up so yeah yeah i think so and we could be here all night as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or simply have a question about it read the book write a comment or review in our goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves you may just get your review read out loud here the average rating for the lawrence book is out of five stars is 4.08 and the gospel wow. version what do you mean wow i like eat that terrence dicks um, <laughs> sorry i shouldn't say that he's passed along but exactly. i'm just saying that that seems like a very high score relative to we normally we see something in the threes well so. just wait the goss version is 4.29 yeah the reviews from our goodreads group have again been edited for length sorry everyone but keep them coming In our Goodreads group, Dave Davis gives both versions 3.75 stars and says, I've never been all that fond of this story on television, probably because it was felt that if the production crew were actually in Paris, then Paris had to be seen in tedious detail as often as possible. There's a lot of Paris in the story. It seemed at times more of a travelogue than an adventure story, and the pacing changed accordingly whenever such travelogue sequence occurred. He says his score applies to both of the books once more, and once more for slightly different reasons. He did this with Pirate Planet, too. Both versions improve on the travelogue scenes by including action, dialogue, and description, which make them more interesting and, incidentally, better travelogues. Though I had a slight problem with the naming of the hermit as Campo, surely in Planet of the Spiders the Doctor would have recognized him as soon as he heard that name. 
I decided to view it as artistic license and was able to enjoy an utterly charming aside. It was not an aside, of course. It was really a clever way of showing the first scene of the TV story of Skaroth blowing up his ship in a way that didn't feel like boring exposition. One thing that slightly bothered me about this story, but doubtless wouldn't even occur to younger viewers, is the fact that the Countess doesn't suspect that there's anything strange about her husband. It obviously bothered the author, too, as here it's a marriage of convenience, they don't actually like each other, and there's no intimacy to betray Scarlet's secret. True, there's no sex going on here, because please... No sensical poor. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. A user named Book Collector gives the Lawrence version five stars and says David Lawrence does a good job at adapting the story, taking the target author route of changing scenes and adding materials rather than doing a straightforward adaptation. I like this version of the story. It's well written and fun to read. Since this was released, the BBC have now done two official adaptations. Which version do I prefer? Well, I like them all. But the full novel is the best reading experience, and the BBC Target version is a wonderful Target book. This version by Lawrence is good, and if you can get hold of it, it's a very enjoyable read. Which, in fact, you can. It's available online. For the Goss version, Dave Davis says, as with Pirate Planet, James Goss does a remarkable impersonation of Douglas Adams' writing style. It seems effortless, but probably took a lot of work, which itself is very Adams-like. <laughs> the only thing I wasn't too keen on in this version was the expansion of the characters that were played on TV by John Cleese and Eleanor Braun. Yeah, he probably read the long version. It's well written, and I wouldn't have been at all bothered if they'd been completely new characters, but the joke on TV works because there's no explanation for their pomposity. It is essentially a one-liner, which isn't funny when turned into a shaggy dog story. That's my only quibble, though, and the disappointment was mild and more than compensated for by the addition of a selected history of the Scaroth Splinters. And finally, also about the Goss version, Michael in our Goodreads group says, in the afterward, James Goss notes that there are three people who don't love City of Death and they're all in the process of being hunted down. <laughs> Maybe this is why I went into hiding because while I like it, I'm not as enamored with it as many fans are. Please don't hate me. Goss takes a page from Adams and not telling the same story precisely the same way for each adaptation. Combining the televised version with the shooting scripts and a few flourishes of his own, in the style of Adams, of course, Goss gives readers an opportunity to find new nuggets in City of Death. Goss even creates an interesting spin on the reveal, the monster cliffhanger ending of episode one, with the Count not realizing he's a splintered part of the Jagroth and being just as shocked as viewers are intended to be at the reveal that he's a green-faced, bug-eyed monster. Though this does create some questions when it comes to the motivation of stealing the Mona Lisa and other aspects of the story, this is more like the later entries in the Target novel line as opposed to most of the Fourth Doctor stories ones that feel like a straight adaptation of the shooting script with minimal descriptions thrown in for good measure. It makes this one of the better Fourth Doctor novelizations in the long line of books. Whew, that's a lot. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give each version? I would give Lawrence's version 4.25, and I would give Goss's version 4.5. I think they're both really well written. I enjoyed both of them a lot. Um, I think that the Doctor, Romana, and the addition of Duggan, I think they're all handled really well. Actually, all of the characters are handled really well. Um, I really get a feeling for them, but... Of the two, I felt like Goss really gave me like a little bit more 
to <laughs> think about, and it just added a little more weight to kind of the philosophical ideas presented within it. But that that does not mean that Lawrence's version is not good, clearly, by the 4.25 rating. So, yeah, they're both fantastic. If you have a chance, read them. Okay. And Allison? I'm going to flip those, and it's very subjective on, um, on my part. So I, I'm going to go 4.5 Lawrence, 4.25 Goss, just to be contrary. No, no, I, it's purely subjectively because Lawrence made me like the same characters he liked. A little more than Goss made me contemptuous of the characters he's contemptuous of, that makes sense. Like, all the mm-hmm. characters are a little, not all the characters, but many of the characters are little more vicious, a little more sadistic, a little more petty in Goss's version, which is delightful on its own. But Goss found a little bit more to like, especially about the Countess and Romana in a way that made it a little bit more of a fun ride for me. They're both terrific, but I basically liked a lot of the same things he liked. And I loved the, par- the party, the birthday party with all of the historic figures in it. And that, that little bonus scene uh, put that one over the up for me but like um romana we have a, a great class of villain here with cheese plate and everything <laughs> <laughs> true and as for me i've been going back and forth about this for weeks now and i think i finally settled on some scores for oh, gosh, it. you're settling old scores <laughs> no god no that's not what i mean at all shut like up anyway my scores <laughs> shush my scores, oh, for God's sake, my scores, uh, for the Lawrence version, I'd give it a 4.5, and for the James Goss version, a 4.75. And it's not necessarily because the Lawrence version is weaker. It absolutely isn't. In fact, I think the only things that I don't like about it are the very things that y'all seem to like about it, which are, uh, is all the extra material, mainly because he's right. He's doing a new adventures novel. And new adventures novels are fantastic when they get that mix right. When they don't, they come across as self-indulgent. His version isn't self-indulgent, but it comes really close to that line in a way that the Goss novel doesn't. So that's the only thing I would knock off points for. Otherwise, wonderful. James Goss, the only thing I don't like about his version is Scarleone not knowing about his actual, you know, nature and the whole mask thing and all that. And it's like, uh, uh, and it's something I didn't like about the long version. I still don't really much care for it in the short version. That being said... The one-liners are amazing. The exposition is amazing. What he does with the death of Kerensky will have me forgive him any flaws in any writing because that is sheer brilliance. So yeah, it's going to be a 4.5 for Lawrence and 4.75, almost a 5, for James Goss. Well, thank you both. Mm Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be looking at David Fisher's non-Terrence Dick's novelization of his own script for The Creature from the Pit. Because you remember, he didn't like Terrence Dick's, so he did it himself this time. And I've already started reading it, and oh my god, it is a delight. In the meantime... If you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. 
Bye. Bye. Absolutely exquisite. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.